0: Welcome to Opto Sessions where we interview the brightest minds from the stock market uncovering their secrets to success. If you're looking for ideas, tips and techniques from the world's best, you're in the right place. Welcome back for another episode of Opto Sessions. Today I'm talking to Chris Camillo, founder of Dumb Money and an investor that's turned $20,000 into over 30 million and counting. Having led and founded a series of successful tech and software companies, in 2018, Chris and his two friends Dave Hansen and Jordan McLean gave up the day job to invest their own money full-time. Not only have they already recorded extraordinary success, Chris and co have pioneered a unique investment strategy, or what they call social arbitrage. Chris hasn't stopped there. Dumb Money have chronicled every high and low on their eponymous YouTube channel, now a mainstay among individual investors and, of course, their 52,000 subscribers. Chris gives us a real insight into his strategy, but not only that, he identifies the advantages enjoyed by those managing their own investment portfolios up against the financial might of institutional money managers, a breath of fresh air. So, without further ado, enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome, Chris. Great to have you on the podcast. How's your week been so far? Has it been busy? It's, it's been
1: great. It's been busy like every week this year, pretty much, uh, you know, with the pandemic and market volatility. Um, it's been pretty nonstop for me.
0: Yeah, great. Yeah, similar on our side as well. Um, So I wanted to start by addressing something that I think will be at the top of anyone's agenda that's seen your YouTube channel, Dumb Money. Uh, And that's the fact that you've turned $20,000 into 10 million. In fact, I believe that's the subject of one of your most watched videos on the channel, so people should definitely check that out. But a lot of what I want to talk to you about today is digging into how exactly you did this. Uh, And I watched your talk at the Bazinga Trading Summit last year, you described how it'd be difficult or even impossible to explain that strategy in just eight minutes. Uh, now, today we've got a little bit longer than that, uh, so we'll go into it in more detail shortly. But to start, I wondered if you could give us a top line about how the strategy works and crucially, perhaps, what makes it different?
1: Yeah, um, so I, I call the strategy, and this has evolved over the years, but I, I guess I, I have, I've coined a uh, a name for it now, and it's it's called social arb investing. There was a point in time when I called it information arb investing. That was pre pre the social world, right? Uh, you know, maybe 12, 13 years ago. But now that we have Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and the whole world communicates online, um, it's evolved into what I call social arb uh, you know, strategy. And it's actually really simple. It's not it's not fundamental investing. So it's not about, you know, looking at company financials or identifying companies that are misvalued um, based on revenue or, you know, price to earnings ratios. It's not looking at management teams. It's not looking at company health. It's certainly not technical investing. Um, not looking at price or history of price movement for the equity or any other variables like that. Uh, The methodology relies exclusively on one's ability to detect change quicker than others. So what you're really looking to do is to identify some sort of change that's happening in the world that could relate to a change in consumer behavior It could relate to a change in culture, really, quite honestly, a change in anything, uh, a change in in maybe maybe it's a product trend or a government regulation, and then you're attempting to connect that change to investable opportunities in the market, right? So either companies or sectors or the market as a whole, that would likely be impacted by that change once others are able to either identify it like you have or fully appreciate what what you've seen in terms of that change. So I I like to think of it as investing when there's an imbalance of information. And that's when you enter a trade, and then exiting the trade at the point of, you know, information equilibrium, right? Uh, When everyone kind of appreciates that information at the same level. So that's really what social arb investing is is about and more often than not these days i'm identifying that change through social channels uh, by seeing an acceleration or or observing an acceleration in conversation around a particular topic that would be abnormal based on the normal conversation level conversation about that topic right so it could be something as simple as identifying that a product is selling out in the market or that you know people are you know really adopting connected fitness that's that's probably a topic i imagine we'll get into more later on when we talk about some of my favorite trades right now Uh, but but any sort of change that that's impacting companies it's all about identifying it early if that makes sense yeah no that makes complete
0: sense yeah that's that seems key and actually I guess to me, it's you know, strategy might be too limiting a word to put on it. It's almost a, an investment philosophy, I suppose. Um, and uh, actually, there's, there's a lot I want to dig into. But first, uh, and crucially, I suppose, for anyone that isn't aware of your work, I'm keen to understand what's influenced your career thus far and how you've made it to where you are today. So as far as I'm aware, your career has been predominantly, um, up until this point at least, in the tech or software space, having worked for companies like... Uh, shopzilla and eCarList um, before co-founding ticker tags in 2013 so i imagine that's given you um, a great insight into product development and business strategy and even what to look for in the business uh, the businesses you're investing in i mean is that fair as that proved sort of relatively formative in in terms of how you invest now
1: Yeah, I I kind of my professional career since 1998 has been working at early stage companies, starting with a company called CarsDirect.com, back during the dot-com boom, to a company called BizRate, which today is called, yes, Shopzilla, Mm -hmm. I don't know how many, they might have changed their name since then. Uh, I actually then spent 10 years helping build a company called E-Rewards Market Research, uh, which is, uh, you know, acquired research now. And it's called something different now, but it's the world's largest research uh, company, um, research panel company. Uh, I then actually helped a couple of my friends start a company called e that we grew and sold to a publicly traded uh, firm called Dior Track, which is now part of Cox Automotive. Uh, and then I became, um, you know, through, through this process, right, of working at early stage companies, Every time you get a little bit bigger chunk of the company and eventually you just kind of start your own and then you start your own and, and sell that. Uh, then you start investing in other people's companies and that's kind of how it all starts. And before you know it, I'm now invested in, you know, 60 different early stage companies that are all private and a lot of them, I'm an advisor, uh, consultant and, you know, some of them uh, I'm a, even an operating partner of and we've been fortunate to take a few of them Uh, and sell them to publicly traded companies. So we have a a few big wins. Uh, My most recent one was Ticker Tags, and that was a company that touches social arm investing. It was really taking social arm investing and bringing it to Wall Street. Uh, So we created a tech platform that essentially allowed hedge funds, quant funds, and investment banks, uh, like Bank of America and Jefferies, to actually measure the frequency of mentions of word combinations across Twitter So they could actually identify these anomalies in conversational data early. So it was really a way of institutionalizing the methodology. And and we ended up selling that company to Jeffries. But yes, I think being intimately involved in business uh, from an early stage, even at the enterprise level, enables you to, to understand, I would say, the marginal drivers of acceleration or the marginal drivers of success. Uh, for a company or sector. So so those worlds really do merge.
0: Yeah, interesting. And uh, I did have a question down here about how much uh, kind of your experience at Ticket Tags and what you created there has influenced your current strategy. I mean, they seem to almost completely align. So essentially is. You know, it is what you're doing now very much representative of the uh, experience and the product you created at TickerTags?
1: Yeah, so so what I'm doing now, you know, TickerTags was really just a tool for for my methodology, right? And it was a tool that could have been used by, you know, just retail traders uh, or institutions, but, you know, due to the high cost of purchasing data from Twitter and then managing hundreds of millions of tweets in real time and being able to graph them and extract uh, insight from them the price point of using that tool was really unreachable for retail investors so it was geared towards institutions i wouldn't necessarily necessarily say the tool itself or creating ticker tags and selling that company has changed uh, the methodology because it really just was a tool but what it taught me you know having spent four and a half years of my life working, you know, really closely uh, with some of the best hedge funds and quant funds in the world, as well as some of the best uh, sell-side analysts in the world, and really educating Wall Street um, about conversational data and how to interpret conversational data. What it taught me was that, because I had never worked on the institutional side of Wall Street, right? And I always thought behind the curtain, there were things that they knew that me as a retail trader really, I was at I was at a huge disadvantage. I think a lot of retail traders feel that way. Um, I ultimately realized that there was nothing going on on the other side of the curtain. Uh, no disrespect, because probably some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life uh, were, you know, on Wall Street that I've met over this four and a half year period, and some of them are, are still very. Close friends, and and a few of them are actually amazing at what they do, but most of them are not very good uh, at, at what they do, and and it's really not because they're not smart. Uh, it's just it's an institutional problem because of the way Wall Street works, and it's really hard for individuals that work at that institutional level to really do things differently from the way they've been done for decades, and it's really hard for them to gain gain a true information edge or social edge, even using tool sets uh, like ticker tags. So, you know, the one takeaway was that the retail investor is not at a disadvantage. And in many ways, because of the flexibility a retail investor has, they have an advantage over institutional traders and Wall Street. And, and that's kind of what I took away from that experience.
0: Yeah, well, I'm sure I've mentioned to you before, but a lot of the people listening in will be retail investors. So that'll be uh, comforting uh, information and news for them as well as they try and sort of gain alpha and seek their edge uh, as they're investing in trading. And actually, that's probably a nice juncture to to return to your strategy um, and kind of work out and listen to about what you do on your side of the fence. So firstly, starting with the theory before tackling how and what shape that takes in practice, is it all about t- detecting early change, as you said? And, and what I mean by that, I suppose, is it, is it crucial to know and understand something before the rest of the market?
1: Yes. I mean, that's everything, right? So it is absolutely everything. You know, my life, I probably spend somewhere between, you know, 30 and 60 hours a week trying to surface investable opportunities by looking for change right so i I spent a tremendous amount of time on twitter uh and there's various you know i would for lack of a better words various keywords that i'm constantly checking to try to identify you know change in consumer behavior uh change in culture change in product demand across various categories changes in weather, right? I mean, literally any sort of change. Sometimes it's a matter of identifying the change months early. Sometimes it's identifying a change weeks or days early. And occasionally it can be identifying something in a matter of minutes, uh, minutes earlier than the market. So that's really where everything starts. And without it, uh, you really can't be a great social arb investor. I've
0: heard you sum up the uh, investment process by which you work in in three key questions. So first, uh, you ask yourself whether the thing or the change you've spotted has the potential to majorly impact the company positively or negatively. Can you give us an example of that to make it more real for for the people listening in?
1: Um, Sure, so this is an example I I love actually. Uh, It's one of my favorite trades. Uh, A few years ago, there was a a trend that was happening. It was happening globally with kids. And kids uh, all out of nowhere started to make slime. And what I mean by slime is actual slime, right? So it became a big crafting trend for kids and moms to do with kids to where they would create all kinds of different colored slime and different textured slime just to kind of play with at home. And it's something that I picked up on really early on, and that was just simply a change in in behavior in, in what kids like to do. Like, and it lasted. The trend lasted for like over a year. Um, it just happens to be that one of the primary ingredients to for DIY slime, right? Uh, do it yourself slime is is white glue. And the world's largest manufacturer of white glue is Elmer's glue. Um, So, uh, you know, I I was able to surface that trend very early and I connected the dots to Elmer's glue. And then when I started researching Elmer's glue, I realized that uh, they were selling out right globally. So it became next to impossible to buy Elmer's glue. Well, Elmer's Glue is a subsidiary of Newell Brands, which is a publicly traded company, maybe better known, they used to be called Rubbermaid. Although Elmer's Glue is a really small part of that company, the company itself is a slow growth company. So even if Elmer's Glue was only 1% or 2%, and I think they were like 1% or 2% of the total company in terms of revenue, their revenue increasing by 50 percent, which is exactly what happened at Elmer 's Glue, was able to have an outsized impact on the overall company and really moved the needle for earnings for multiple quarters in a row. And what was amazing is that Newell brand stock price, I think went up 17 or 18 percent over the course of a couple quarters. It was a trade that I had you know uh, initiated. It was a lever trade. And I think I ended up making, I don't know, maybe close to 200% on my investment over a very short period of time. But that's, that's a really interesting example where the whole world could have seen this, right? There were tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of families globally where there were kids making this slime. How many were able to, you know, make the connection between that and an ingredient of slime and the company uh, that was investable Uh, based on that trend.
0: Yeah, interesting. Actually, I think that feeds into my next question. I mean, so as I understand it, the second step of this process is essentially recognizing whether the rest of the market already knows about the thing or the change you've noticed. So how do you get a sense of whether the market has already picked up on this?
1: That's a really important piece of the process, and it just might be one of the hardest parts of this social arb strategy. Um, so what you want to look for is, in this case of you know, identifying you know, the, the DIY slime trend, you want to try to detect, does anyone else know about this that's in the investable market uh, for new old brands, right? Do analysts know about it? Uh, do the funds investing in it know about it? Do retail traders know about it? Uh, so you want to try to search all of the news, all of the analyst reports that you can you know, identify online. You obviously want to go read the quarterly earnings reports, the most recent quarterly earnings reports for the company. That's something that I recommend every investor do. And you know, through that process, obviously go on Twitter as well. Go on StockTwits, right? Uh, see what retail investors are saying. Go on sites like Seeking Alpha and read amateur uh, analyst reports there. Is anybody talking about this, whether on the retail or institutional side or even on the company side? So what I was able to do at at one point during the trade was identify that even the company acknowledged this. They actually acknowledged it in their quarterly report by saying they were seeing an uptick uh, in, in, in sales of Elmer's glue due to this Trend and at the time the trend was pretty early, so I was able to actually monitor the trend and see that it had grown substantially quarter over quarter. Uh, so if it was able, if it was on management's radar in the prior quarter when the trend was barely a thing, uh, it made intuitive sense that that trend as that trend got exponentially larger, it was really going to become a big part of the story in the next quarter. Yet no analysts were talking about it. No retail traders were talking about it. Uh, I really wasn't able to find anywhere uh, where people were really discussing this actively as being a big thing that was happening and that you you should invest in new old brands because of this trend. So I felt that there was still a pretty large information imbalance. And and trying to really make that determination as a social arb trader is just something that you develop a gut instinct to over time. You know, if you kind of see it mentioned in web boards and on Twitter and on StockTwits, and it's also being discussed in analyst reports, then you know what? It's probably too late. Uh, If it's not being discussed at all, you probably have a good opportunity uh, to arb that social information. And if, if it's being discussed a little bit, you just have to make a determination for yourself.
0: Yeah, interesting. And I guess like once you've done all that homework, you're, you're, you're confident that you've uh, noticed this information imbalance, as you just said there. Um, based on the period that you think it will take for the market to learn about that information, um, an investor or trader should ask themselves, I guess, as this third key question, whether there is something else that could happen in that trade window that's more significant than what they've discovered. Um, and I've heard you give some good examples of this as well. I wonder whether you could give us one of those, just again, to make that sort of real for, for, for the listeners.
1: Yes. So, you know, again, the, the concept is investing at an information imbalance and then, you know, exiting at information parity. But you have to, one, make sure that not only is this information going to move the needle for the company, but that also there's not something else happening at the company that is more important uh, than the information that you're trading. So, you know, if, if you know that there's going to be a judgment on a major lawsuit or a major government regulation over the course of the period of time when you think your information is going to be disseminated to the market, uh and, and that government regulation or that class action lawsuit or anything else, right? If there's, if there's another product launch during that quarter and the whole world is looking to the success or failure of that product launch to determine whether or not that company should be valued higher or lower than where it is today, certainly that might be more important than some piece of information that you're trading on that company, Right. So you just have to really make that determination. Um, And and it's really on an investment by investment basis. And there have been times in the past where I've made trades uh, and I was correct in the information I was trading, uh, but something else, maybe something else you weren't even aware of, uh, such as a large fund that have been looking for uh, an opportunity to exit a 10% position in the company or maybe they were one of the largest shareholders in the company, they, they're looking to exit during your trade window and and that could really come to haunt you, right? So sometimes you're able to identify when there's something that's going on that's more important than the information you're trading, sometimes you can't identify it. Uh, and that's just part of the risk profile of of, of any trade Uh, but it's something that as an investor you need to be aware of right it's not just the information you're trading what else is happening at the company that could trump uh the information you're you're trading
0: yeah completely and and to get a sense of what this looks like in practice and if we start with your position sizes i mean how much of your portfolio are you risking on on any one trade
1: yeah I I like to think of trades as being either low medium or high conviction Uh, in on a low conviction trade I might be you know if I'm just investing equity I might be investing a couple percent of my portfolio uh on a high conviction trade I might be investing anywhere between 20 percent of my portfolio and 30% of my portfolio in an individual equity on a high-conviction trade. And you know there have been times in the past where I know this seems insane, when I was much younger <laughs> that I invested 100% of my portfolio in a single investment. I remember investing 100% of my portfolio in a company that everyone probably knows, uh, Nintendo, back when they first uh, released the Nintendo Wii. I don't know. Maybe it was two thousand six, two thousand seven. Uh, I was able to identify that the Wii was a real game changer. Uh, you know, being at the E three conference back then when it was first released, and kind of seeing the way people interacted with that gaming set. It was kind of the first gaming set that was had truly brought gaming outside of the box, right? To so where you could really play sports in your living room and do all kinds of fun things. And it was a real game changer. Uh, I don't think the market appreciated it because they were so focused on the one of the initial first-gen consoles for Sony, uh, PlayStation, and Xbox. And you know, and no one thought that this little weak-powered Nintendo uh, Wii system, which was not nearly as, as advanced as the PlayStation or Xbox, could compete just because they had this you know, system that allowed you to hold controls in your hands and it could see you waving your arm when you're playing fake tennis, right? So uh, sometimes if I have high conviction, I'll, I'll, I'll really in- invest quite a bit of my portfolio.
0: Yeah, and I, I guess we talked about that sort of extensive uh, homework you're doing on these companies to give you that high conviction. I just wondered whether there was any sort of consistent metrics, and I know you're not obviously a fundamental investor, but whether there's anything that maybe – is a bit of a smoking gun. You know, if you see that stat or that metric, that gives you the inclination that maybe something's going on here and it's worthy of further, uh, further investigation or whether, we're, whether there's any sort of actionable uh, insight there that we can pass on to the listeners.
1: No, I only look at three things, really. The, you know, the, the degree to which, uh, you know, that information will, you know, move the needle for that company um, and then also uh, whether anything else is happening at that company can be more important than the information you're trading, of course, and then kind of what the trade window is for when you believe that information will be disseminated to the public, whether it's a quarterly earnings call or some other you know point at which you think that information will be surfaced to the market at large. I, I don't look at any fundamental information at all. I don't look at pricing. Uh, it, I try my best not to let that Uh, cloud uh, the the pure nature of the social art uh, strategy
0: yeah yeah that's interesting and I I guess following that then it seems to me at least um, that the less of quantitative the less of metric driven your approach the harder it might be then to systemize it and you know replicate it and replicate that process at scale what's your take on that
1: yeah, I mean, people always say, and that was the big issue with Wall Street embracing the methodology, right? They, they wanted something that could be replicated at scale. They wanted to be able to uh, extend the methodology to hundreds of trades a year, right? And I just don't see this as being something that you could successfully extrapolate to hundreds of trades a year, dozens of trades a year, potentially, um, for most individual investors, I think the concept of making one great social ARB investment a year is, is plenty, right? Because <laughs> right? it, it, it's hard. Um, for me, yes, I, I'm a t- I, historically, I, I think over the 15-year window, that i turned you know tens of thousands into tens of millions it actually it's way more than 10 million now it's well north of 30 million um over the past 15 years i generally have made anywhere between two and maybe at the very very high end six high conviction trades a year but usually two or three right so in some years just one uh, so why do people feel that they need to have a strategy that can be extrapolated over hundreds of trades a year, especially if you're a retail trader? I just, it's not necessary for me, and certainly I've been able to turn tens of thousands to tens of millions. I have every intention of turning those tens of millions into hundreds of millions, if not more, over the course of the next decade or two. Um, so I just don't think it's necessary. Right to be able to institutionalize the methodology, it is something that takes a lot of manual observation and a lot of manual interpretation. And there is a lot of interpretation. I, you know, I could be looking at the same trade that you are in the same way, but have a very different interpretation as to the degree to which this information will impact this company, uh, the degree to which. This information is important. The degree to which other people have, you know, looked at this information or not, right? How saturated is the information, right? Uh, what? How much is it? How to what degree has it been disseminated already to the market? Uh, and, and what else is happening that could happen that could, you know, conflict with this trade? Uh, you know, we could disagree on all three of those things, even though we're looking at the same information, right? And that's okay um that's just part of it
0: yeah completely and actually i guess listening to this has kind of made me realize that another i guess really important element of the process and and part of the philosophy to use a, a grander term is essentially to be truly unconstrained to borrow an a, a institutional term uh you're not just non-asset class specific, for example. But you, you, you know, it seems that you take that a step further by investing in private companies too. For example, I mean, is this something that you'd encourage other retail or self-directed investors to do?
1: You know, I encourage everyone to engage in the investment community. I think it's extraordinarily important, uh, especially for this next generation uh who's really you know there are a lot of things the next generation is looking to achieve and unfortunately i think a lot of those things they feel handcuffed that i could they can only achieve them through political means um and i think people underestimate the power of their pocketbook um when it comes to the types of companies or sectors they invest in you know you want an ev future you can invest in ev companies and what To the degree that your investment works out or not is really determined on how the degree to which your generation embraces EV. But if you feel like you're going to embrace EV and electronic vehicles, then invest in that sector. And the investment in and within itself, as we've seen with Tesla, sometimes can change the world, right? And could actually change that company's likelihood of being successful, right, and accelerate the EV movement. So a lot of the reason, you know, really one of the only reasons why I started, you know, our YouTube channel, our Dumb Money, and we have a two YouTube channel, Dumb Money and Dumb Money Live, as well as our Discord group, is to democratize investing for the masses. I mean, I don't sell anything, right? Like I don't sell programs and, you know, I don't sell training I just trade for myself. That's how I make my money. Uh, I think it's really, really important uh, for people to get involved with investing. And it not only allows you the ability to be financially independent quicker in life, and regardless of what your career is or how well your career goes, (laughs) but it also gives you the ability to really kind of, you know, mold what the future looks like uh, by controlling where your money goes.
0: Yeah, completely, actually. And uh, it's that democratization and the dissemination of information that you are putting out via your two YouTube channels that really, to me anyway, gives it real uh, authenticity. And I've got a couple of questions on dumb money uh, explicitly uh, or specifically uh, uh, in a couple of minutes. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. So I just wanted to finish this section on your strategy with, with two questions, really, and uh, ho- hopefully they're fairly simple. Um, but the first is, what do you think your best or, to use a different word, favorite trade
1: is thus far? OK, so my favorite trade was this year. Um and it, I have so many favorite trades, by the way. But <laughs> My favorite trade uh, was probably this year, Peloton. Well, Why? I've made more money off it than any other <laughs> trade I've ever made. Uh, it's a trade that I've now made probably close to $4 million on uh, just this year alone. And I love the trade. I love trades where the rest of the market just doesn't see it. I, I love spotting things when the rest of the market is just, you know, really behind, they have the same information as you, but they refuse to believe it. And the Peloton trade started back in March when obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic and the market didn't realize that Peloton had stopped advertising and the impact that would have on their financials and their profitability. You know, they were selling Peloton, so many of them and I know Peloton is you know, a company that's pretty new to Europe, right? It's really big here in the U.S. They recently started selling them you know, in Germany and, and I think Germany and the U.K. Uh, but Peloton was selling so many bikes they didn't have to advertise. And the knock against Peloton was always they have to spend so much money on advertising they'll maybe never be profitable. So uh, that was something that I caught on to very early. Uh, and it worked out really quite well for me because the market just didn't believe that an exercise bike company would ever grow to be as prominent as Peloton has grown to be. And it still continues to be, quite honestly, one of my favorite trades. And it's a company I still own quite a lot of stock in.
0: Okay. Yeah. Great. I was going to ask uh, whether you've still got uh, a position in Peloton. But yeah. That's that's really interesting. Um, so uh, if we if we flip it then, uh, what's what's the worst trade? Or again, if I rephrase slightly, the one that particularly stings.
1: Yeah. Um, so there was I had a hedge fund for a very short window of time, like ninety days, uh, right around the same time I was starting Ticker Tags. I had to close the hedge fund because my ticker tags clients did not want me uh, trading on my own data. Uh, they thought I would front run the data before they could see it. Right? <laughs> but uh, my, first, you know, I had this huge track record. Uh, it took me a year to launch the fund. I had, you know, 24 limited partners, and I was re- really excited to get my first trade under my belt. And after you know, 10 years of ridiculous re- ridiculous returns I think averaging 70 or 80 percent annualized returns in the market I finally launched this fund my first trade is a toy company called Jack specific and I was trading a, a toy called snow glow Elsa uh, from the movie frozen and it was probably one of the best-selling toys in two decades of the toy industry and Jack Specific, this tiny little toy company manufactured the toy. Uh, The day of earnings, when the information got disseminated and they had the best quarter in the company's history, the stock was trading up 35% pre-market. I was levered in the trade. I was set to make close to 150%, maybe 200% return on my investment. I was really proud of myself because I worked really hard on the trade. Uh, the market opened and the stock immediately went from being up 30% to being even and within a matter of minutes before I could even start to exit the trade. Uh, It was down 5%, 10%, 15%, 20%. Before you know it, the stock was down 25%. Uh, I didn't realize what had happened until I think about six or seven weeks later uh, when I was able to see SEC documents showing that and this is an example I talked about earlier, kind of hit it at earlier. Uh, the largest institutional owner in the, of the stock, the fund that owned more of the stock than anyone else in the world, you know, was selling into the strength. And as you know, I would have never have known this, but they were looking for an opportunity to get exit their position. And with all that strength that day going into that great earnings, they decide to dump their entire 11, 10 or 11% ownership in the company in that single day. Uh, something I could have never have known, but it still haunts me. And it was really quite embarrassing, uh, way to start off that fund.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, not the best way to start. I could definitely imagine why that one stings, but
1: but it it shows that you just, no matter how hard you work, uh, no matter how much information you have and no matter how high your conviction is in the information you're trading, you never, ever, ever, there's no such thing as a sure thing. Even the information you're trading could be a short thing, but there's always other elements that you will never be able to see that have potential to come in and adversely impact your trade. And that's something, as an investor, you need to always be aware of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, really solid
0: advice for anyone listening in, I'm sure. Um, And I I mentioned it earlier, but I want to end the interview by talking about dumb money. Uh, I've just got a couple of questions about... Uh, that YouTube channel, that business—you uh, found it in 2018, I believe, along with your friends Dave Hansen and Jordan McLean. Uh, for any of our listeners that are yet to tune in, what's what's it all about?
1: Yes, yeah, so we do. Uh, this is all brand new to us too. <laughs> we, we we now it used to be we, we were usually doing startups, right? We were taking a camera around, showing you all the startups we were meeting with. So it was kind of like a live version of Shark Tank, but there was no stage, because when you invest in startup companies, you're not sitting on a stage where people are coming up, pitching their ideas. You're out there in the real world, meeting people, driving around, taking, you know, taking meetings, hearing rumors about founders doing great things. And sometimes you're, you'll be hanging out with a founder for months and months before you pull the trigger on that investment. So we kind of showed you the real guts of what it's like to be an early stage investor. And we took you on that journey with us. I loved it. It was so much fun. And that was our YouTube.com forward slash dumb money. That was our channel. And when the pandemic hit, we were no longer able to do that stuff because we're stuck in our house for the last eight months. So we launched dumb money live, which is YouTube.com forward slash dumb money live. And that was a channel all about us trading stocks. Uh, and we do both now, uh, even the old Dumb Money channel is really more about stock trading than early stage investing because we haven't gotten back out there yet to the, to, you know, the startup world because we're still stuck in our homes. Uh, but Dumb Money Live is really us just doing what we do every day, which is talking to each other about the things that we're seeing, uh, the opportunities in social art investing, You know the changes that we're seeing happening in the world. And how we're connecting that change to investable opportunities—it's so much fun. We 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 tape it twice a week. We're usually on for an hour or two, and it's just you know t- us talking. Uh, and you really get to see inside the mindset of a social arm investor. And we really share just about all of our medium and high conviction, some of even of our low conviction trades. We share them with our community in real time. We're not we're not advisors, right? We're not financial advisors. We don't give financial advice. We just kind of let you look into our window of how we see the world, how we surface investments, how we vet those investments. Um, And then we kind of let you watch as those investments (laughs) unfold, either positively or negatively. And listen, this has been an insane year for us, right? So, you know, my portfolio has grown just this year from you know 7 million to well over 20 million and if you were watching dumb money live you've gotten to experience that growth in real time starting with when we shorted the stock market back in march because we saw this pandemic uh surfacing and you know the rest of the market was clueless to it for the most part because of all the noise right and and we saw through the noise we we you know had a thesis of how it would impact the global economic world and financial markets. And we put a tremendous amount of money uh, risk uh, shorting the market in a levered way. And it worked out quite well for us. And at the same time, I was seeing all of these other stocks that quite honestly should do well in a pandemic like Amazon and Peloton and Shopify, and there were dozens and dozens of companies. I said, wait a second, why are they down 30 40%? Um, these, com- these companies will do nothing but benefit from this situation. Um, and sure enough, I went long in all these companies in a levered way. And a few weeks later, the market started to realize that, these companies were not going to be harmed. They were going to do just fine. And so if you ask me, hey, how did you triple your portfolio size this year? That's how I did it, right? And and just thinking about things like, okay, how are consumers behaving? Well, you know, guess what? Everyone's really embracing the outdoors this summer. They're going camping, right? Uh, they're going canoeing. They're riding, they're buying all-terrain vehicles. They're buying boats. They're buying jet skis right? I mean, this was pretty evident, but the market didn't see it until it actually already happened in the summer. So, you know, all these stocks that are involved with the great outdoors, and we did an episode called the great outdoors, where we literally did nothing but talk about all the companies that were going to benefit from that trend. And sure enough, they were some of the biggest winners this summer. So that, that's what we do. We've built this amazing community. We have a Discord channel. Uh, dumbmoney.com forward slash discord where our community does what we do now. We have, I don't know, three, four 5,000 people uh, who are social ARB investors. And quite honestly, I'm getting some of my best trades now from the community. Uh, So like we really have built this collaborative space where this whole notion of being a social ARB investor is a thing. Um, And it's really kind of one big family, quite honestly. And and I love it because, you know, anybody can do what we do. And we are truly democratizing uh, this concept of just being able to detect change early and connect that change to investable opportunities. We share it through our YouTube channel. We collaborate on Discord. And, you know, we don't know where it's going, uh, but we're having a lot of fun with it. I think our community is as well.
0: Yeah I mean it definitely comes across that way. It really is a fascinating watch and I definitely recommend our our listeners tune in. I mean for me the the lifestyle focus and even in the pandemic that just idea that you're giving every second good or bad uh to the viewer is something that makes it I guess really authentic and uh, it really comes across well. So uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will tune in. Um so if I can just finish we we typically ask I think all of our all of our uh, guests so far quick fire questions so there's five of them uh, and the idea is that you can answer in as little as one sentence or even one word so the first of those is what in your opinion is the top mistake investors make
1: getting caught up in market noise watching financial news and letting that noise impact your investments and worst part of all is you know letting the noise and letting other investors quote professional institutional research analysts and investors you know change your mind about something that you were excited about right uh believe in yourself believe in your own research they don't really know a lot more than you do and more often than not they know less than you do so don't, don't let them don't let them uh you know cloud your mind as an investor
0: yeah completely okay so second question what's your favorite stock at the moment
1: well, you know, I think I mentioned this earlier. I really do love these, the Peloton. And the reason why I love it is, you know, it, I think it can, I think it, it sounds a little cheesy, but I think it can be the apple of connected fitness. It can be the Lululemon of connected fitness. I believe connected fitness, if you move forward 10, 20, 30 years, I think we think about fitness the same way we think about having big TVs in our house. It's just something that everybody does. I'm not saying that gyms are going away forever, but I think gyms are getting smaller in time because I think you don't need to go to a gym to feel connected. Uh, And I think fitness is a category that just keeps growing and Peloton is definitely the market incumbent and the leader. I think they have a bright future ahead of them and I'm really excited about the future of of, of Peloton. And it's one of those stocks, I think I'm gonna be in for a very long time.
0: Mm, Yeah, completely agree. Okay, so question three, uh, and this is a tough one. What is the most memorable moment from your
1: career to date? You know, I love it when I get things right that are not a small stock or a medium stock, you know, a a mid-sized stock. But when I get things right that are maybe some of the biggest, most covered stocks in the world, and the entire world missed it and got it wrong, right? Uh, I would say there's two of those situations. One is with Apple. Uh, very, very early on when the iPhone first came out and all the world's analysts. You know, I wrote a book called Laughing at Wall Street, and I dedicated a whole chapter of that book, Laughing at Wall Street, to Apple and this trade. Uh, Because every analyst in the world pretty much said, they don't have a keyboard, it'll never work, Apple's not a phone company, they don't know what they're doing. They really missed what it was like to hold an iPhone in your hand for the first time. Uh, you know, Wall Street was so disconnected from culture, so disconnected from humanity that they didn't understand the impact that that single device was going to have on our culture and our world over the coming decade. Um, and that was an investment I'm really proud of. I had another one in a company called Netflix, also one of the most covered companies in the world, you know, a few years ago in a quarter when all of Wall Street said they were going to miss earnings Uh, You know, I came out when I was at Ticker Tags, we put out a report that essentially said, no, we think they might have one of the best earnings quarters ever because of a show called Stranger Things. And, you know, we were able to look at social data and identify that there had never been a show in the history of Netflix that had driven uh, as much social conversation as the show Stranger Things And the one thing that we knew about Netflix was when people talk about a show, that results in people subscribing to Netflix. And sure enough, the stock was up 20% on earnings that day. Wall Street was completely shocked. Uh, And we were the only data shop in the world that had come out that quarter Uh, and really with a strong conviction call on Netflix. So I like it when we get it right and everybody else gets it wrong. It makes me realize that we're really onto something uh, with social arm uh, uh, strategy.
0: Yeah, I completely get why those are potentially the most satisfying trades. Um so question 4 and the penultimate question. A top tip
1: for your younger self. Yeah, go bigger. Go even bigger on my highest conviction trades. You know, I think even Warren Buffett said that, you know, he really only had 10 trades throughout his 45-50 year career that made the vast majority of his money for him. I'm in the same boat. Just a handful of my biggest trades contributed to most of my gains over the past 15 years. And if I could do it all again, even though I went pretty big on those trades, I would go even bigger. Um, You know, you never know, you might only get one or two or three big, big trades when you're right and everyone else just doesn't see it. And when that happens, I go bigger. But it is important that I go bigger with money that I'm willing to risk. And it's really important to separate what I call risk money from the money that pays for your kid's college education, right, or the money that you need to pay your bills. So while I say yes, go big, uh, it's important to bucket your money out. I'm not a financial advisor, but I I bucket my money differently uh, for trading. But of the money I have for trading uh, and taking risk with, when I see something I really like and I'm high conviction, I need to go in big on it and lever myself.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's great. And um, final question then, uh, and it's something on Opto uh, we're really into. We're all about speaking to the people uh, and the companies that are outperforming the majority, outperforming the wider market. So, in your opinion, and I guess if you could sum it up in in one word, or if, if you could highlight one thing, what is your biggest source of alpha? Do you think
1: my biggest source of alpha would be people conversations just observing the world's conversations um it's the one area that i focus on most i use data sources like google trends and i love it um, but google's trends is a hard data source meaning it's black and white and there's not a tremendous amount of interpretation with social conversations there are a lot of ways to interpret the data and that's what i love because you know everyone could be looking at the same data as me But I can gain an edge on everyone else because I feel like I'm the best interpreting that data and identifying where there's an anomaly or where there's a true change in in the way people are speaking about a subject matter or about a brand or about a company's products. Um, And that's where I find the most alpha.
0: Okay, great. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll let you go. You've already been really generous with your time. Uh, but just thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And hopefully we can speak again soon.
1: Absolutely. It was it was a lot of fun.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest to you. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during a trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new podcasts, stock reports or events from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. Until next time.